Father, we thank you that uh, your presence is ever with us. We thank you that you're faithful when we're not. We thank you that you love us when we're unlovable. We thank you, God, that you have given us your word and that you have instilled it in the hearts and minds of those who wrote it. We thank you for this heritage of faith, Lord, that we share. And we ask that you guide our time now as we worship you through the word. In your name, Jesus, amen. I want you to picture in your mind a beautiful, glorious, warm day like today. You're out sitting with some friends and some family on a lovely sailboat. Gently glides into a bay and rests above gorgeous turquoise blue water. It couldn't be a better day with just a light, gentle breeze. As lunch approaches, don't get ahead of me because lunch will come after. But as lunch approaches, everyone eats and chats, soaking up the sun and the good fellowship. As the afternoon in, uh, breeze increases, you gaze over the water and you notice a group of rocks slowly drifting towards you. And you think that's odd as you point it out to a friend on the boat. Then you suddenly realize what's happening. The person sailing the boat has neglected to do something very important. Perhaps he felt it was unnecessary. Perhaps he doesn't believe in them. Perhaps he likes to live dangerously. Perhaps he just forgot. Do you know what was not done? He didn't put the anchor down. And with the wind picking up, the boat is now drifting toward the rocks, toward danger. What to do? It's time to act and put the anchor down. In our text today, Jude was glancing over the churches. And he saw danger, a danger so serious that if it was left unchallenged, the church and its believers could drift away. Even some could crash and be destroyed. If left unchallenged, unmentioned, there was a risk. Jude begins his letter by reassuring the believers of God's presence and power to preserve their lives in his calling and love. And it is from this position of security that Jude writes to strengthen the believers in their faith and to warn them not to be misled by apostates, false teachers, who in life and in doctrine try to lead them astray. And finally, he calls them, he commands them to keep themselves in God's love. Now, to help us to navigate our way through Jude, it's only 25 verses, but it's amazing how much Jude packs in to 25 sentences. After his introduction, we're going to discuss his urgent concern. What was his concern? We'll look at the consequences of apostasy, and we'll finish with his command to contend for the faith. So Jude begins this way his letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I don't know if you realize this, but who is Jude? Jude was a youngest brother of James, who were both most assuredly 
the half-brothers of Jesus. This is one of the brothers of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He was the youngest. That's according to Matthew uh, 13.55. But when he writes his letter, he doesn't say that. He simply says, I am a servant of Jesus. In humility, he presents himself. And he describes the disciples he's writing to as called, beloved, and kept. This idea of kept will reappear in the message. So I want you to remember that word, keep, kept. Also, notice that these three words are in the past tense. God has already called them. God has already loved them. God is already keeping them. It's done. And the reason that God calls them is because he loves them, because he loves you. That's why he calls you to be his. And our calling is not subject to the vagrancies of ourselves or our times or our world because it is protected by God himself. The text says we're kept for and by Jesus Christ. And then he offers his prayer. May peace, mercy, and love be multiplied to you. He says this because he wants him to understand that what he's going to say next is going to be very harsh, very serious. We don't talk about this very much uh, in our Christian culture. We live in a very dangerous world for the gospel. So what is Jude's concern? Well, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, Jude was planning to write a letter. He wanted to write a letter to the churches, and he wanted to encourage them. We have a wonderful salvation. Exhort them to follow that, that gospel. But before he could write, God intervened and said, no, write something else. Write something that they need to hear to contend for the faith. So his mind was changed by God. Now the idea to contend here means to strive intensely to preserve the faith. This isn't a passive thing. To contend means an action. It requires effort and courage to confront false doctrines and teachings. But what are we to contend? It is a faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. This is the truth which the apostles handed down to each generation. By the time Jude writes, you're talking about a second or third generation of believers. They've heard this stuff, but they may not even have met an apostle. So that in that gap, there's a danger of drifting away from the gospel that was given to them. A gospel that remains unique, unchangeable, and delivered or entrusted to all the believers. The gospel has been entrusted to you. It's up to you to preserve it. God gives it to you, not just to the church, not just to leaders, not just to the past, but to you and to every generation. And he calls all of us to protect the integrity of our received faith. Now, there's no need to protect something unless it's threatened. So what now threatens the gospel in these churches? Well, he goes on in verse 4. Jude says, for certain people, and this is a term he uses throughout the text to refer to false teachers, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They have crept in unnoticed. Do you realize that we automatically expect the world out there to oppose the gospel? It's a given. We don't accept society to believe as we do. We don't accept society to support our beliefs or encourage those beliefs. We're not surprised by opposition. But this is not what Jude is talking about. He's talking about this danger that comes from within the church, not outside. It's within. And we're not prepared often to deal with that. Our culture in Canada is very much about tolerance, uh, give and take. We don't like to confront people. We just think somebody has a different opinion. Uh, but sometimes there are dangerous things that you have to deal with. You have to confront cancer. You have to confront serious matters in life. We all do it. And the gospel is no different because the gospel deals with eternal life or eternal death. This is a serious matter. I hope I can try and um, communicate uh, Jude's passion over this and what he sees. So these people have crept into the church. They're in the church. And now they are spreading distortions of the gospel, even outright lies. But Jude says God already has determined their condemnation. He knows what's going to happen. They're going to be judged. And he gives three reasons, three reasons why they're judged. They're ungodly. That is, they don't reflect the God that they claim to represent. They lack godly character. And this is expressed when they pervert the grace of our God. What does Jude mean, perverting the grace of God? How do you pervert God's grace? What does that mean? Well, I'll give you an example. This is... Um, I'll call evil, their evil logic. They say, we are forgiven by God's grace alone, and we did not contribute to this grace. That's true. So here's the evil bit. They, they slip in. They teach that it doesn't matter what you do in life because your salvation has nothing to do with your behavior. Can you see the subtle difference here? He's saying, yes, we're saved by grace alone, Therefore, I can do whatever I want. That's not grace. That's a perversion of what God has done. So they pervert God's grace by claiming his grace makes no transformative changes in one's life. In essence, they teach, live however you want and don't worry because God will forgive you anyway. It's like a blank check. Write in your sin anytime you want and God is obligated to pay the bill. That's not grace. That's a perversion of his grace. Thus, they pervert grace into a license for immorality to justify whatever they do. Paul, Romans 6, says the same thing. He says, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who had died to sin still live in it? So there has to be evidence. So the false teachers are judged because they still live in sin and teach others this twisted, ungodly lifestyle. And from here, it's really easy to take the step from there to denying 
Jesus as our only master and Lord. If Jesus is not your master, he's not your Lord. And if he's not your Lord, then you do not belong to him, no matter what you say. This is a danger that exists today, even more so in our time, because we have social media, technologies, avenues everywhere full of noise that can influence us in all sorts of different, different, different directions. So I want to give you some examples. Because this can sound kind of like, okay, I hear what you're saying, false teachers, I don't, I get the concept, but how does this work? Well, most of us are aware of the prosperity gospel that promotes health and wealth, but no suffering. And we see this correctly as a distortion of the gospel. Because it does not take into the whole counsel of God. But I want to stress that this, what you're just talking about, is more subtle and more personal. So I'll give you an example from my own experience. Many, many years ago, when I was first exploring opportunities to serve God in a, in a different country, I was invited to share what I was doing as a fellow church member. As we talked, having a cup of coffee, she told me that she was a Christian because she grew up in Canada. If she grew up in India, she'd be a Hindu. She believed God was big enough to include all people. So it didn't matter really what you believed, just that you were true to yourself and to your culture. Now I hope your response as you hear that is the same as my response. I thought, well, I need to explain the gospel to her. She doesn't understand what she's talking about. Before I could even do that, she cut me short and she said, I don't like Christians pushing their faith. Ironically, that's what she was doing to me, but she didn't see that. Now, I later thought, after I left, I thought, well, what if, in the church I was attending, if somebody came to the church who had a Hindu background and was sincerely wanting to know about Jesus, and he met her, what would she have said to him? You're fine, you're good as you are, don't worry about it, we're happy you're here, and that's it. She'd be teaching a false, a falsity to this person, a hindrance. Judah's talking about that because she refused to be corrected. It wasn't just that she made a mistake. When confronted, no, I'm fine the way I am, my belief is fine, it's what God wants, he loves me. That's what Judah's saying. He's saying, watch out, this person was a member of the church. I don't know how she would remember. Uh, it wasn't a Baptist church that I belonged to at the time, but she ended up there. And she did other things that uh, I won't tell you about because of time. Make no mistake about it. It's a serious matter to distort and reject God's gospel and to, to lead others astray. And there are eternal consequences. In this largest portion of Jude's letter, running from verses 5 to 16, he takes a long time to hammer home how dangerous this is. Uh, all I can say is it's like a mother, how she'd react to her child facing harm. How would she react? She would protect her child. Jude is trying to protect his people. He's not present. He hears this going on. He hears reports. I need to write a letter to these churches that I, that I maybe I planted. I pastored. I'm not there anymore. 
They need help. I need to show them how serious this is. And so he begins by saying, remember. Remember the past. Now, before we do that, I want to just to mention what is an apostate. We don't often know what that word means. We don't use that word much uh, in our language anymore. But according to Michael Kruger, an apostate is somebody who is inside God's community. They appear part of the church. They seem to be a believer. They may say all the right things. They may even take part of the Lord's Supper and take communion. And then later, consciously and intentionally, they repudiate the gospel. They change it. They may leave that church or remain hidden and sharing what they think is true. Sadly, that describes the lady I mentioned. She remained in the church, and unless the leaders would confront her and call her out and say, this isn't a place for you, she'd remain. Apostates are people who were never Christians and then stopped being a Christian. They never were. And only later did they become apparent what they were. So in Jude, verses 5 to 7, he brings out three very well-known events in Jewish history because he's writing to Jewish Christians, describing the consequences of apostasy. And the first one is, although you once know, fully know it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is a sin of disbelief. Jude assumes his audience knows all about the story of the Exodus. I'm assuming you know all about the story of the Exodus. How in Numbers 14, the people decided, we're not going to follow you, God, into the promised land. We are fearful, and we're going to reject you and not believe in you. And God said, fine, wander the wilderness, and you will be destroyed there, that generation who refused to obey me. Despite experiencing God's power, and rescue, many of these people expressed their disbelief as rebellion and were destroyed. This is an example of shocking irreverence. None of us have seen God part the Red Sea. None of us have seen God feeding you with manna and quail. None of us have seen God produce water in a desert out of a rock. That wasn't enough for them. They chose to disbelieve, and God says, you chose your own condemnation. I will judge you for it. The second example is fallen angels. He goes on and he says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment day of the great day. This is a sin of disobedience. We have disbelief and now dis disobedience. They're not exclusive. They often go together. Now, Jude simply states the consequences of angelic disobedience, rather than explain how they left their proper place. These angels at some point rejected their God-assigned positions of authority by abandoning their responsibilities with dramatic and eternal consequences. Because God has kept them, there's that word again, he's kept only in a negative sense, he's kept these dis disobedient angels in eternal chains waiting for the day of judgment. So God takes seriously disbelief and disobedience. 
Yet Jude has one more example, and that's the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. As with rebellion of Israel and the angels, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah rejected God's design for their lives. Their rebellion was to pursue sexual immorality, specifically embracing unnatural desires, of which we're all aware. Now, Jude takes these really extreme examples of God's just judgment against disbelief, disobedience, and disrespect or moral defilement, and he applies these to these false teachers. This is how serious he's taking this. And he says, right now, in your churches, and Jude is saying this, this is happening. Because in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They have corrupt behavior. They have disbelief. Some are saying, well, I, I had a dream. I had a vision. It's from God. This is what I'm going to tell. This is my revelation. I'm going to say it. Whether it matches with, matches with the gospel or not. Self-deluded. Because dreams are always placed on the authority of Scripture. Schreiner in his commentary said, the mere claim to have a dream from the Lord does not validate whatever you might say or, for that matter, do. They also had disrespect for theirs and others' bodies. They defile the flesh. Remember when I talked about the perversion of, the perverting of grace? Do whatever you want. God will forgive you. So I can involve myself in immorality. God will forgive me. That's an ungodly behavior, and God condemns that. They reject authority. They reject the Lord's authority or the authority of the church leaders. They even blaspheme or slander the glorious ones, which I believe he means celestial angels. Because in verse 9, Jude includes this curious story. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It's an interesting illustration, and you have to understand it's an illustration, that Jude is pulling from a non-biblical book that everyone knew the story. It's part of Jewish literature. I use illustrations in our scripture to emphasize or illustrate something, and that's what he's doing. Without going further into the story of what's going on here, the point Jude makes is that Michael the archangel refrained from slandering the devil. Instead, he called upon God to rebuke and judge. He left the position of judgment to God. He didn't assume it for himself. He kept his place. It did not presume to exceed it. Not so with the false teachers. In contrast, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Unlike Michael, the archangel, these people assume they have enough knowledge and authority to pass judgment, despite their profound ignorance. 
Ironically, they are destroyed by confusing their natural instincts with spiritual insights. So my, my, my thinking process needed to say, well, that, that must be what God thinks. These people end up just repeating the sins of the past. And using the motif of woe pronouncements, Jude continues piling on this condemnation, this judgment. Woe pronouncements are in the Old Testament. They uh, signify impending judgment. Jesus used them too in his, in his uh, mentioning of some of the cities that would be judged. And Jude compares the false teachers with others who drifted into error. Woe to them, for these false teachers, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. If you don't know the stories of the Old Testament, this means nothing to you. It's okay, you know, okay, Cain, yeah, he was, a, was Abel, I think, that's right, and uh, Balaam, who's Balaam? Wasn't there a donkey involved? Oh, yeah, yeah, Balaam and his donkey. And then Korah, who, who's Korah? I have a friend named Korah, is that? No, it's not that same person. <laughs> He's saying they're behaving like these individuals did. Cain was selfish, filled with envy and jealousy, and it culminated in murder and hate. Balaam actually received oracles from God, and God said to him, you will not curse Israel. But the king offered him a lot of money. And whenever Balaam tried to curse Israel, he couldn't. So instead what he did was he told Balak, the way to destroy Israel is to entice him into sexual immorality. He was offered his money, which is more attractive than obedience. Korah, Korah is well known because he rejected God's authority in choosing Moses and Aaron to lead the community. In his own rebellion, he convinced others to challenge God's choice of Moses and suffered terrible judgment. Again, a false teacher who doesn't just have his opinion, but he includes others in his rebellion. Cain, Balaam, and Korah are examples of God's judgment upon false teachers who distort the gospel, seek their own profit above obedience, and refuse to submit to God. And we're only at verse 11. He still continues. He says they're dangerous. He says these people are, are like hidden reefs at your love feasts, which are meals that they have before communion. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless crowds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're hypocrites. They care only about themselves. They promise much but give nothing. They're not concerned with their own shame. They display it. And they're like shooting stars that you see for a moment, then they're gone. They pass away. And he continues and said, is it about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of the holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have said against him. 
Four times he says, I'm godly. He's making the point. These people are not godly people. Now again, Judas appealing to a Jewish audience, a well-known story that he's appealing to, to illustrate. And then he comes down at the very end here and he says, their character, the character is bad. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, I hope when you came to church today, you weren't expecting a, uh, a pleasant, um, generous, uh, wonderful message of all, you know, candy and uh, beautiful things. Um, uh, aside from the silver at the beginning, um, the day's gotten kind of dark. But don't worry, it gets better at the end. See, Jude makes no effort to soften his warnings about false teachers. He is direct and he's blunt. We don't often have that in our lives. We don't have people being blunt with us. Um, he says, these people pose an enormous threat and danger to the people of God, just as they do today. Even if they cannot fully deceive, their actions sow discord, doubt, and division. We see division everywhere today. With the currents of the world pushing and pulling at us and at the church, trying to dislodge us from the faith once and for all delivered, what can we do to protect ourselves? Our families, our churches, how do we protect ourselves? What do we do against this onslaught of ungodly noise that comes in and can confuse people? Well, where is our anchor? Where is it anchored that holds the boat in place? Well, now we come to the last portion of his text. Jude has a command, and the command that he began with is to contend for the faith that we received. Not just any faith, but the biblical faith that was given to us, that we have in his word, that has been transmitted to us for us to hold and live within. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, before this happened, they said to you, in the last time, there'll be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So we should not be surprised when this happens. We shouldn't be surprised when we hear it happening. We expect this because we're told this is going to happen. Even the Lord himself told us this was going to happen. John, Peter, even Paul. Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus when he was leaving. He said to them, I know that after my departure, when I leave this church, wolves, fierce wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, and from among your own selves, people who are in your church right now, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We have no excuse. We know this is happening. It's going to happen in our midst. Or happen to people we know. Now, it's not enough to know that this will happen. Okay, it's good knowledge, I know that, but what do I do? Well, Jude gives us some practical advice, which, and I'm using uh, the idea from a man named Dr. Bert Downs, because it's easy to remember, he said, remember the three R's. It's not writing arithmetic 
And what was the other one? Reading. Which struck me as odd because the only word that starts with R is reading. It's not the three R's. It's reading, writing, and arithmetic. There's no, only one, one R. Anyway, this has three R's. And the first one is to be rooted. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves, what's that word again? Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The key part of this verse, these two verses, is actually the first phrase in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of the Lord. Everything else builds upon that keeping. In a sense, keeping ourselves in the love of the Lord is the anchor that we use to keep us from drifting. And it points back to verse 2, and it points ahead to verse 24, which we're going to get to. You see, the reality that God keeps us does not nullify our responsibilities to persevere in the faith, but rather encourages us. What did Jesus say? He said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in my love. If you keep, as a word again, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Keep. Remember that word, keep. Remain in his love by actively pursuing three practices. Building, praying, and waiting. Growing an understanding of the faith handed down to us is something we build upon. And it means that all believers, every one of us, needs to read, study, and obey God's word. If you don't want to drift, if you want to identify false teaching, you have to know the truth. You have to be in God's word. And as an application, if I might impose upon Martin for a second, Martin has started uh, an app uh, link on you, new version. It's a Bible app for your tablet and your phone. It's a reading plan for the scriptures. If you struggle to read the Word of God regularly, talk to Martin. He'll get you hooked up with that. And the beauty of this is, and I know people who do this, they say, you know, in the morning I'm just too wiped out to read the text. What do I do? I listen to it. I'm having my coffee, I'm listening to the Word of God. That app provides that option in various languages, as long as you have a Wi-Fi or a data plan. So there's no excuse not to be immersed in God's word and to learn it and study it. That's part of how we keep ourselves in God's love. The second way is prayer. Prayer nurtures, nurtures our relationship with God. Paul in his letter to the church at Ephesus said the same thing. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Application. We heard it announced this morning. A week this Saturday, we gather for prayer from 10 to 12. If you can be here, be here. Nothing binds people together more than praying. God speaks to us through our time listening to him in his word and praying to him as we pray. So I encourage you to join us if you can a week this Saturday. The last thing he says about keeping ourselves is waiting. Waiting. It's an odd thing to do. It seems so passive. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
waiting points to the return of Jesus, who is our hope. Hope is so important to keep us going. Fred mentioned it's been a tough couple of years. One thing that goes is hope. And we have to hang on to hope. And that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is not our final destination. You've not arrived yet. You're still traveling. We dwell, we dwell to remember that we are citizens of heaven. Our home is not here. And so our hope is waiting for the mercy of Christ to be fully revealed on that day. That's our goal. That's our joy. And this is how we remain rooted in the faith in which Christ himself keeps us. We in turn keep ourselves in his love by building ourselves in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and expectantly waiting for Christ, our hope, to bring us into eternal life. If I can put it this way, you know a boat anchor, it's lodged into something solid. That's God. But there's a chain that goes from the anchor to you, or to the boat. That chain is what keeps you to the anchor. It can't break. God ensures it cannot break. But it can get frayed. It can be pulled really hard. And the way to strengthen that chain is to build yourself up, read God's word, pray, and wait with hope. That makes the chain strong. Because it's not just about us. It's not just about you being okay. Okay, I'm, I'm in. This is great. I'm, I'm strong with the Lord. I'm feeling fantastic. But there are other people around us. Be rooted, be reaching. That's the second R. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What's Jude talking about here? Unfortunately, many of us know people, family, friends, who suffer doubt and questions about the faith, often raised by false teachings or things they've read. We're not to judge them in their doubt, but have mercy upon them in love to bring them back to full understanding of the gospel, if they'll let us. That's the first level, because you yourself would be sitting there saying, you know, I have some serious questions about the faith. Uh, they came up in an issue, I had a discussion with somebody, or I read something on the website, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not sure, that's okay. You ask questions. Go to somebody and ask them, what do you think about this? And they will help you. Don't go to the false teachers, of course, but go to people who you trust, who are mature in the faith. The second level is to save others by snatching them out of the fire. The idea is being quick. Somebody's wavering and they're, they're in a dangerous situation, they're living in sin, we need to get them out quick because they're gonna get burned or destroyed. And we, if we take too long and have our hand in there, can also get burned. These are people like the lady I mentioned at the outset, who believed that all ways lead to God, yet was quite unwilling to hear the gospel. You try and snatch that person back if you can, you pray. See, sharing with her at that moment would have been like pulling her out of a fire. You could easily be burned if you were unwise. You may know people with whom it is very difficult to speak of Christ and the gospel. They, they, they may become very angry with you. Yet Jude says, we still need to reach out. On the deepest, most difficult level, 
He says, mercy, have, show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by flesh. This final category are people who are the most far away from Jesus. They may think they're okay, but they're far away. These are the false teachers themselves. By reaching out to somebody who is really out there, you must be careful that you don't get sucked into their ideas or damaged by what they believe. So if you're going to do that, you have to be very solid in your own faith, understanding what you're doing, have lots of prayer before you do this, because there's a danger you could be deceived yourself, or at least led to have doubt. You see, Judge, uh, Judge, Jude urges all believers to be firmly rooted in the gospel and to be ready to reach out to those around us. And this is the final R. Be rooted, be reaching, and now the final R is to be real. And this is his doxology, the last verse, the two verses of the text. Now to him who's able to keep you, that word keep again, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of, our, of, of his glory with great joy. We remain real. Now what do we mean by that? Real is knowing the difference between reality and false, wishful thinking. It's responding to God as he really is, not as we wish him to be. We change for him. We align ourselves to him because he's already perfect. He's the holy one. He's just. And this reality appears in verse 2 where it says that we're kept by Christ. Now the idea, the actual idea behind keep you from stumbling is actually to keep you from tripping. And I'm wrapping this up now, but I'll leave you with an illustration. How many of you have seen a parent with a small child just learning how to walk? They hold the child's hand, the child kind of, you know, and the child falls, but doesn't fall because the parent has the hand. That's you. That's me with God. I'm keeping myself in his hand, he's holding my hand, and he's walking with me. My other hand can help somebody else. That's reaching out. I'm rooted in his hand. My other hand is reaching out to help others who are doubting, who are in trouble, and bringing them along to have the anchor that is God. And this is a reality of life. We live in a real world. And he ends now by saying something we're all familiar with, a praise to God, to the only God who keeps us, who keeps false teachers at bay, who preserves the purity and integrity of our faith and of the churches we belong to, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. That is our great hope. This is a difficult message to talk about. We're talking about confrontation. We're talking about danger. But we know that God is in charge of everything. And we can trust and rest in his assurance that he will keep us. And then use us to help others. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for um, telling us that this world is not a safe place. Even in the midst of your people, there are, are weeds, Lord, that will emerge to try and, and distort your gospel. 
But Father, we give you thanks and praise that uh, you know all this already. We thank you that you preserve us, you keep us, you strengthen us, you build us, that we might be yours. And you keep us forever, Lord, on that day when we have our hope realized and we see you face to face, Jesus. Amen.